The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We have lots to cover today. I want to try and get right to it. Um, for those of you getting ready to start spending your hard-earned savings on college, Kathy Ruby's here to talk through what you need to know. And for those of you still in high school or for the parents of students who are still in high school, I'm not sure yet if you've thought about your plans for the summer, but if you haven't, uh, and by plans for the summer, I certainly don't mean the week you're going to be spending at the beach, although that's important too. But if you haven't, uh, Mary Sue Yoon is stopping by, and she's going to have some tips for last-minute summer plans. But first, for those of you who are interested in attending West Point or Annapolis or any of the other service academies in preparation for serving your country, um, former Goucher admissions officer and Xavier High School guidance counselor Lisa Albro has some advice for you. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Well, we're excited that you came back and uh, I'm particularly excited to have you with us for this conversation because I know that when I have students who are asking me about service academies, you are the first person that I turn to. And I know you've worked with a number of students who have gone through this process. So I really think of you as the expert on this. So excited that you could make it uh, here today to talk to us about that. Thanks. Yeah, I did. I had a lot of students. Uh, when I worked at Xavier, we had a, a junior ROTC program, and many of those students wanted to apply to service academies. So, Great. Yeah. So let's start with the first question, which is pretty basic, but still, I think, uh, important to ask, and that is, what are service academies? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, because I have had questions from parents before saying, are they, do they mean community service? Because, it, you know, you hear the word service. You don't know always what that's attached to. Yes, sure service to your country, military academies specifically, and the five main or, you know, most well-known ones, I suppose you could say, would be West Point uh, up in the university, I'm sorry, U.S. Military Academy at West Point, uh, U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, it's in New London, Connecticut, and then finally the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy up in Kings Point, New York. Gotcha. Okay, so... What is the process? I know it is much more involved, and I know a lot of people out there are thinking, how could it possibly be more involved than the regular college application process? And it is. So what, uh, what's the process, and how is it different? Yeah, it, it is involved, uh, much more involved in, in many ways, whereas with the college process, usually in the summer or the fall of senior year, you're starting to fill out applications, you're starting to send them, maybe write some essays, uh, not to minimize the the work that goes into the, that process because there's quite a lot. But for the military academies, particularly those five that I mentioned, 
there's some pre-work that students really kind of need to do. Um, first and foremost, they need to check their eligibility to make sure that they meet the criteria that they're at least 17 years old, but no more than 23 years old. They must be U.S. citizens. I mean, they, they know if they're citizens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. they, they must not be married. They can't have dependents. That's the first thing. They must meet those levels of eligibility. Next, they'll want to complete a candidate questionnaire, which just asks some biographical and background information. Uh, it's a good idea if in the summer, prior to the summer of junior going into senior year, they have applied for a summer program, one of the academy's summer programs. It's a week-long leadership intensive program. Uh, these applications need to be completed well before summer, obviously, if they're going to attend in the summer. So they really need sure. to be thinking about this in their junior year. They can't wait till senior year for all of this. It's not a mandate that they attend these summer programs, by the way, but if, if they do, it's, it's better. Right. <laughs> uh, they're, it... they're getting exposure to the academy. Um, they're showing their interest. Uh, it's just, it's, it's sort of a leg up in a way. Uh, if they've attended the academy, they also don't need to complete that candidate questionnaire that I, that I had mentioned. And is that because uh, they will have already completed it and applying to the summer program, so they kind of already have that stuff? Correct. Correct. Gotcha. They already okay. have that basic information, so they won't have to complete a candidate questionnaire if they've attended the summer program. Um, next, whether or not they attend the summer program, they should be looking to find their academy liaison officer. They can go to the website for the particular academy or academies, and, and they can apply to multiple academies. We can cover that later. Okay. Uh, contact the liaison officer. Just reach out to that person. It usually is just a, a link to that person, and they'll reach out for contact, and that person might then reach out to them and start a conversation. It's, it's good to have you know, knowledge of who that person is, how to reach out to them, how to contact them. And then moving into fall, late summer into fall, they'll want to get uh, nomination packets from their congressional representatives, from their senators, their congressmen, uh, even a vice president, (laughs) the (laughs) vice president, I should say, Um, because they need to have nominations in order to be admitted to West Point, Annapolis, or Colorado Springs, so either Air Force, uh, Army, or Navy. They must have nominations for those three. Gotcha. So how hard is it to get the nomination? I know that's a big deal. And can you get in with, you can't get in without a nomination, it sounds like. Right. For those three, for Army, Navy, and Air Force, they cannot get in without nominations. Um, It's it's a bit of a challenge, but it's not impossible. Um, For congressional representatives, for senators, they only have a certain number of students that they may nominate for the academies. And so if they're in a district for, the, for Congress, they're in a district where lots of students are looking to go to the academies, it might be harder to obtain a congressional nomination in that case. Um, they should really think about, students, I should say, should think about multiple academies if they're willing to consider multiple branches of the military. Because a, can, a congressman or a senator can nominate them for multiple or can say, well, I've had, you know, I've got my, uh, my maximum of, of nominees for West Point, but I can still nominate somebody else for Naval Academy. Gotcha. So if they're and willing to consider multiple branches of the military, it's, it's a good idea to do that. And, and 
talk to us about, I mean, how selective are these? So if you get the nomination, how likely are you to then go on and get admitted? Is it a pretty good chance you'll get admitted if you get the nomination? Or is that just one early hurdle to cross and then the likelihood is still pretty low that you're actually going to get admitted? Right. It's just that's one hurdle to cross, Beth. Um, it, okay. you know, there's a selectivity to going to an academy. Mind you, they're not paying tuition. Students do not pay to attend these academies. This is all on the taxpayer. We're basically saying you're committing to this academy for four years, and then you're committing to service to your country for five years or more, depending on what you choose to do once you're there. If you want to go to flight school, that's more. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, you know, if a higher level degree or medical program or something, that would be more service, more commitment to service. So it, it, it's very challenging, very difficult to get into a program that's essentially no cost to the student, right? Right, right. So the nomination packets are the, one of the first kind of hurdles they need to clear. They need to very often write essays for the congressmen, for the senators, they'll have to provide transcripts of their grades from ninth through the end of 11th grade, so for the first three years of high school. They'll have to provide testing scores, SAT or ACT. Now, this is just to the senators and congressmen. This is not mm-hmm. even the application to the academy yet. <laughs> so right, right. They have to show all that data. Uh, they'll have to get recommendation letters from teachers, and very often some Specifics might be asked for, like an English teacher, a math teacher. Uh, so they'll have to pay attention to what those specifics are if they're being asked to, to provide from a certain kind of teacher as well. Um, and, and those do usually do around October, late October. Okay. Of your senior year. Of the senior year, correct. And, and one more question on that. Do different people who are, have the ability to nominate require different things? So would you potentially be asked to provide certain recommendations for one person and different recommendations for another, or are the requirements more or less the same? So once you complete that packet, um, you should have it done for pretty much anyone you might be soliciting for a recommendation. They can vary from official to official. And so it's Uh, very important to read up on what each individual senator or congressman's or congresswoman's uh, requirements are, and those are usually found on their websites. On every official's re- website, you'll see something about their nomination process. Gotcha. So and that then, would be the first thing I would suggest for students who are currently, you know, sophomores or juniors in high school. It would be a good idea to read up on that now, even yes. though they couldn't complete the packets yet. They might not even have access to the packets themselves just yet, because some of them don't put their packets online or make them available until sometime in the summer. Gotcha. But at the absolute latest time you should be looking for this is during the summer because this is a significant amount of work that we're talking about, potentially. Um, And this is not for students who are going to leave things to the last minute. You're not going to be successful. Right. (laughs) No part of this process serves students who are last-minute people well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, if they're last-minute people, maybe something military-related wouldn't be for them. Yes, I would agree. And can we talk a little bit about the kinds of things that the service academies are looking for and the things that they value? Because what I have seen sometimes is that certainly they'd like to see good grades and good test scores. But it is, while these places are very selective, it's it's a different kind of selectivity than, say, what an Ivy might expect, where, you know, it, it's 
it's almost perfection across the board at those places. I'm not sure it's perfection so much as real achievement in some specific areas. And can we talk a little bit about that? You're, yes, you're right. And leadership is a big, big deal. You think about it, if ultimately they're going to be leaders in our military. Uh, these academies want to know that students are showing their leadership in high school. Uh, leading groups, clubs, organizations, captains of sports, uh, spearheading projects or committees, they want to see clear evidence of leadership, wherever that can be shown, Uh, leaders of peers, that type of thing. Sure. That's that's first and foremost after those strong grades and strong testing scores. And by the way, the math, SAT, or ACT is the big big issue here. Uh, They really want to see very strong math scores. Because a lot of people going to academies are looking at the sciences, they're looking at engineering and things that involve a lot of math as well. So math is, right. a, math is a key. Leadership is important. Uh, they want to see that they have some connection to some sports. Mm-hmm. They, they, Physical they want fitness. Athletes, you know, they don't have to be you know, year-round athletes, but they surely want uh, some athleticism because every student attending an academy will have to play sports when they get there. So. Right, and they have to do PT every day, so um, physical, physical training, physical right. fitness. Mm-hmm. Right, that's that's a key element of it, as, as I understand it as well. And so, um, and you know, we talk a lot about, or we have talked a lot on the show about the myth of community service and the idea that you know everybody has to do community service because, quite honestly, you don't. However, <laughs> if you want to go to a service academy. Would you say that community service is also something they value, that service to others, which is a sign that they will enjoy the service to others as being part of the military? Or Absolutely. do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. no, it is. It's something that's valued. And, and I've seen, again, numbers of students, dozens and dozens of students who've had significant service, like they've gone to another place and helped to build homes for those who are less fortunate. They have mm-hmm. uh, reached out in their community. They have created programs. They've done things like that with their service hours, with their, with their time and outreach to community. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, let's face it, the, as you mentioned earlier, this is something that's taxpayer funded. And the whole idea of the military is in service to this country. And so a real desire to serve certainly for the officers at any rate, um, is something that's super important. And that's what these academies are turning out. They're turning out those leaders, those people whose job it is to serve and to guide others who also want to serve. Mm-hmm. So that's why it would be important. Okay. What about... Um, what about alternatives to the service academies because they are so difficult to get into and maybe you don't secure a nomination, but you still are really interested in the military um, and in being an officer in the military at some point. Are there other alternatives that are maybe a little bit easier to get into? There are. Well, first let me mention that sometimes students who are not admitted to the academies might be asked to attend the prep school. Uh, each of the academies has its own prep school. Now, this is not something that students can separately apply for. Basically, they'll be reviewed for admission by the actual academy, by the Naval Academy, by West Point, by Air Force, and if they're not deemed admissible but deemed students who might have potential to eventually be admitted, these might be students that they'll tag for admission to their their prep schools, which are 10-month-long uh, programs. The class sizes are about 300, uh, so they're small. Uh, and successful completion usually results in an offer of admission from the academy after that wow. 10 months. So that's a possibility. But again, students can't specifically ask to be considered for that. That's just something that the admissions committee 
will offer to certain students who maybe didn't make the first cut but they think have potential. So there's, there's one way. Uh, there are some other academies, though. If they're not offered candidate status, uh, if they're not offered admission to the academies, they might also consider attending um, senior military colleges and just having those applications out there, uh, Texas A&M, uh, VMI, Virginia Military Institute, Norwich, uh, Virginia Tech, uh, Citadel, University of North Georgia, and there's one for women, the Mary Baldwin, Inst- Mary Baldwin Institute for Women's Leadership also. Uh, those are places they can apply directly to those specifically, those specific academies. So in, in other words, as we encourage everyone to have a balanced list, if you are that convinced that a life in the military is for you, these are your potential safeties or maybe a match or two and then maybe a safety or two um, for someone still looking for an alternative. It's not going to be free, um, but it is going to be another uh, route potentially to leadership in the military going through Correct. those. Now, gotcha. now remember, some of these places I mentioned are not just military academies. Many of them have ROTC connections. And so if students are interested in the military and are applying to these places, they must participate in ROTC. Okay, But only if they get ROTC scholarships do they have to enter the military service. So that might be a whole other ball of wax for a whole other conversation when it comes to ROTC. Uh, But just keep that in mind. Um, But places like the Citadel, for example, you're not going to see a huge civilian population, whereas at Norwich or A&M or uh, Virginia Tech, there's there are a lot of civilians there. There are a lot of people who are not involved in this or no, have no interest in military service. So there's a mix on campus. Right. And actually, for those of you who are thinking that it, that's interesting to you, but maybe you're not quite up for committing to a service academy itself, like a West Point or an Annapolis, mm-hmm. and maybe you are, however, interested in exploring that, and we do have a little bit of time, not much, um, but maybe going to one of those mixed campuses where you can m- maybe explore the military piece um, without yet fully committing to it, and then maybe apply for an ROTC scol- scholarship. But there's, let's quickly cover, what is ROTC? We're tossing that around like it'll be familiar to everyone, and even if you've heard that, you may not know exactly what it is. Right. ROTC is a way to be involved with military preparation. Uh, students don't have to commit to service unless they have a scholarship. They need to apply for the ROTC scholarship if they're seeking that. But a student can just be on a co- high school, sorry, a college campus and join the ROTC. And that would involve some drills. That would involve certain days when they need to wear uniform, uh, where they need to participate in certain military science training classes. Uh, There there will be some physical fitness and some testing and things um, involved in that. So they can try it on for size if they want. And if it's something they're feeling they're really serious about, they could then apply for an ROTC scholarship once they're already involved in the ROTC program on a campus. And many campuses have ROTC offerings across the different branches of the military. Yeah, so and actually, yeah, so I mean, I think it's a really great opportunity. And actually, my husband, full disclosure, had an ROTC scholarship, and it was affiliated with Boston University, but he was um, local in, an, in a, a local institution. He was actually at, um, and of course, the name of the school he attended just flew out of my brain, but he was not at BU, but the ROTC was affiliated with BU, and they had local things that involved a number of local colleges that, um, you know, the PT in the mornings and the thing, things of that nature. And for him, it was a great choice because at West Point, when he was in the Army, there those guys had math on Sunday, on Saturdays, and 
He did not. He had Saturday on Saturday. So he really, he always thought that that's a really good option for someone interested in the military, but maybe not ready to commit to that lifestyle quite yet in while they were in college. Right. And and to your point, just really quickly, let me go back to the service academies. It is not a typical college experience. You know, students have to buy into the whole process and the whole regimented um, you know, system, this is, they're not going to have a typical college experience where they get to kind of hang out in the dorms and do what they want to do. Their days are very, very strictly scheduled, especially starting as plebes or, or freshmen, you know, coming in. Um, they have very little time to themselves. They're slowly given back certain liberties as they go through the program and they get older, they become upperclassmen and they become leaders. But uh, it, it, it is, it's very strict and it can be very limiting for certain students. But for students of a certain mindset and students who really want to serve their country and really want to be part of the military, this could be a really good option for them. And so could ROTC if they're going for the scholarship where they're going to commit to service after they right. graduate. After they graduate. Mm-hmm. Lisa, thank you so much. This has been You're super welcome. interesting. I hope everyone listening found it helpful. Up next, how to best use your savings to pay for college and don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Believe it or not, using your savings to pay for college is not quite as simple as just withdrawing the money and writing a check and calling it a day. Uh, so Kathy Ruby, who's former dean of student financial aid at St. Olaf College, is back. She's been on before, but she's back today with her advice on this sometimes confusing issue. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. All right, so... You'd think it would be simple, right? You just take those savings you've been saving up and you write a check and you're all set, but that's not actually how it works. Um, So uh, let's 
talk through this. Um, why don't we start with um, 529 plans, which are a pretty popular option these days for people saving for college. And what do parents need to think about when they're spending those 529 plans for college? Okay, great. And let's, yes, let's start with the 529 plans. And of course, 529 plans are money that you saved um, in special accounts so that when it's time to use them, the earnings on what you've saved are tax-free as long as you uh, use the money for qualified educational expenses. So the idea here is we want to make sure you're dotting all your I's and crossing your T's to make sure that you, you keep that benefit. So, um, so qualified educational expenses for the purposes of withdrawing from a 529 plan are tuition and fees and uh, books and supplies, required books and supplies, and then room and board as long as the student is at least half-time and at least a half-time student. And you can use them for room and board even if the student is living off campus. Um, so you've got to keep documentation, and there is a limit. You can only use um, as much as what the college estimates it costs for a student to live off campus. But, hmm. but those are the expenses, tuition and fees, required books and supplies, and then room and board. Um, so when you're making withdrawals, you've got to watch out for a few things. The first is to make sure that you make your withdrawal in the same year that you pay for the expenses. Okay. So then you've got to be careful about that because sometimes that can get confusing at the end of a year. You know, you might make a withdrawal in December because you got a spring semester bill from the college. Yep. Um, but don't wait until January to make the payment. <laughs> make right. it in December. Okay. Because um, remember, these are based on calendar year, not academic year. Um, and when you make your withdrawals, I mean, the plan will usually allow you to make the payment out to the beneficiary, meaning the student, or to the owner, um, or directly to the school. Um, administratively, it can be easiest just to have it made out to the student, um, because that, that matches everything on the account and all the documentation that's going to be sent to the IRS later on. Um, okay. But, go ahead. Nope, I was just going to say, okay, that makes sense. Oh, okay, and so the idea here is that you want to be keeping track of your expenses so that in the event that the IRS ever asked you, you would be able to show that you used the money for those qualified expenses. Um, and so the school helps you out a little bit because at the end of January, they're going to send a form to your student and to the IRS called a 1098-T form. And what they do is they tell you, okay, here's what we charged you in required tuition and fees. Um, and then here are the scholarships that your student got because those scholarships aren't taxed, so they reduce the amount of your qualified expenses. Um, so that gives you a starting point. But then if you used um, the money also to, to buy books and supplies and to pay for room and board, you've got to make sure you've got the documentation for that. And, and just a word about those books and supplies, it's required books and supplies. So, of course, have your student keep receipts but also they'll want to keep their syllabi um, from their various classes because sometimes professors will issue a list of books that they want the student to have and they'll say, you know, these are required and then these are optional. And you can mm. only use the 529 withdrawals as qualified um, if they're required books and supplies. And we're not getting into this today, but this raises the issue of why 529s are not necessarily always the best for everybody because you, the way you can use this money is somewhat limited, right? You can't just right. use it to go buy extra long sheets at Bed Bath & Beyond to outfit a dorm room. Even though that's a legitimate college expense, they're not going to consider right. it that for the purposes of a 529. 
Right. The IRS has very specific rules about what are considered qualified educational expenses, and they define it very clearly. Um, but you're right. The, those kinds of things are not included. So, um, and so don't, don't, those, that would not be considered a qualified withdrawal from your 529 plan. Okay. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is to coordinate. You want to make sure that if, if you qualify for any of the tax credits that are available for higher education, um, whether it's the lifetime learning tax credit or more commonly for many families, the American Opportunity Credit, um, those are tax credits that are also based on qualified educational expenses. And the IRS wants you to use, to, to count, you can't double dip. You can't use the same expenses to claim a tax credit that you do to make your 529 plan withdrawal qualified, right? Uh-huh. So, um, and the IRS actually wants you to get the tax credit first. So for families who are, um, if parents are married and filing jointly and their adjusted gross income is uh, less than $180,000 or less, or if you're single and your income is $90,000 or less, you may qualify for these tax credits. So you'll want to be careful um, to coordinate um, these withdrawals from the 529 plans with taking those tax credits. So if you have a tax advisor, you might want to check with them. Um, you can also read through the IRS publication on that. I don't think we really have time to get into the particulars <laughs> of that today. But do know that um, you want to make sure you maximize every tax benefit you can get, of course, because yep. the tax credit can be up to $2,500. So, you know, you want to get that tax credit if you can. And gotcha. um, just make sure you're coordinating with your withdrawals from the 529 plan. Okay. So what about savings that generate capital gains, so just regular taxable savings vehicles? So those, um, obviously, you don't have to worry about, you know, you can just spend those because you don't have any restrictions on how you spend them. The thing to keep in mind there is um, that when you, when you liquidate those savings and they generate capital gains, of course, those capital gains are going to show up on your income tax return. And so depending on the kind of money your student is getting from a college, um, if, it, if it inflates your income enough, it might actually have an impact on your student's financial aid eligibility. So if they're getting need-based financial aid from a college and suddenly your income goes up by several thousand dollars because you've got all these capital gains, that could have an adverse effect on financial aid eligibility. Okay. Um, so. Yeah. Oops, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. You had something well, else no, to say so about that. Well, no, so if that's going to happen, though, I wouldn't, I wouldn't panic about it. For most families, it, uh, um, you know, often you can approach the financial aid office and let them know, you know, yes, I had this jump in income, but it was really because I had, I liquidated these savings to pay for college. Gotcha. Okay. And sometimes they will take that into account. What if the savings... Um, come from a grandparent or someone other than the custodial parent? Is there any specific advice about how to handle that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's awesome if somebody did that, right? <laughs> yes, of course. For your child. <laughs> somebody besides you save for your child, that's a great thing. Um, and certainly you're going to be much better off that someone did that. Um, but there are some things to keep in mind. Again, if it's a 529 plan, it comes back to those qualified educational expenses. So, you know, you'll want to be, be sure to be keeping the documentation and also coordinating with tax benefits if you're eligible. Um, but then the other thing to keep in mind is that payments that are made on behalf of a student by somebody other than the parent on the FAFSA, um, 
any those payments made on their behalf are reported on the next year's FAFSA as untaxed income for the student. And so that can end up impacting financial aid eligibility as well. Gotcha. So you have um, to be careful there. Okay. What about, is there any way around that? Um, yeah, there are some, some ways around it. One, one way is to, if you can coordinate this with the grandparent or the non-custodial parent, um, is for them to delay the payments that they're going to make. Um, so if they can delay what they're going to pay until spring of the student's junior year, so if they can pay for the, you know, the second half of junior year and all of senior year, those payments would never show up anywhere on a financial aid form. Because remember, the financial aid form is always looking at the previous year when it's being completed. So let's see, in February or March of the student's junior year, they're filling out their FAFSA for their senior year, and they're reporting the previous year's income. So if the grandparent makes a payment in January of the junior year, it'll just never show up. And any payments made after that would never show up either. The other thing is, is if, if it's not a huge amount, if it's only a few thousand dollars, if that combined with the student's income is, isn't more than six or $7,000, then it won't really have an impact either. So it just At depends all. on how much it is too. Right. But I think that's great advice. If someone's offering to pay sort of a percentage all along and the ultimate amount that they're paying is going to be equivalent to a full year's worth of tuition or um, a semester and a year's worth of tuition, then save mm-hmm. it and have them pay it at the end. And then that's not going to hurt you earlier on. Exactly. So that's and, some great and, advice. And, you know, for them, then they, they know that the students made it that far too, right? <laughs> exactly. You they're make it that far. and finish if they make it the spring of their junior year, right? Yes, and so then you know, well, if I just make it there, the rest is going to be covered. And, um, it, yeah, it's a bit of a, an additional carrot to hold out for that. Yeah. What happens uh, to my student's financial aid award as my savings are depleted? So I'm spending them to help them to pay for college. Is that going to help them get more money from the college as I spend out on that savings or spend down on that savings? You know, we, we get that question a lot at College Coach, and I used to get it. Um, when I worked in a financial aid office as well. Um, and the answer to that is it depends. I mean, it depends on what the college's policies are. Um, it depends on the kind of financial aid that your student is receiving. Um, if they're receiving need-based aid, it might have an impact. But if they're receiving only merit-based scholarships, then it probably won't have an impact at all. Um, and it depends on how much your savings are declining. But I will say that, you know, when it comes to calculating what your family's ability to contribute is, which is what's used to determine eligibility for need-based financial aid. Um, The formula that does that calculation is weighted heavily toward parents' income. So um, it's heavily, much more weighted toward income than it is toward parent assets. So in general, for, uh, for the federal formula anyway, parent assets are assessed at a rate of about 3 to 5%. So essentially for every $100,000 of savings that you have, your contribution goes up by 3 to $5,000 a year. Okay. So that means that you'd have to deplete quite a bit of your savings in order for it to have a significant impact on eligibility. So I wouldn't hold out too much hope there. Income has a much bigger effect on the contribution than assets do. Right, and then on how much they expect you to pay. Okay, so related to that, do you think it's better to spend all of your savings at once or divide it out over four years? 
Well, once again, of course, it depends, right? <laughs> Those are our favorite words in college admissions, and now it turns out in college finance, too. Absolutely. Um, so, so this is something families just really need to look at for themselves in terms of what options are available and, and what, you know, what the consequences are of spending it all right away versus spreading it out over four years. But you know, it just depends. Do you want to still try to make money on what you've got invested if you think you can? Um, or maybe there are tax reasons that you might want to spread it out depending on how you've saved and um, if it's not a 529 plan, if it's some other form of savings, you may want to be spreading out the tax impact. Um, or if it's a 529 plan where you get a state tax deduction for contributing, you may actually even want to continue contributing while your student's in college. Um, so that's really just something you have to think through. But one of the things to keep in mind is that um, if you know that you've only got a certain amount saved and that eventually you're going to have to use student or parent loans, um, then you just want to make sure that you fully understand what you've got available to you to use and when you can use it. Um, so for instance, student loans are offered on a per year basis. So the federal direct student loan, you can borrow 5500 in the first year, 6500 in the second year, and then 7500 each year in the junior and senior year. And you can't go back so let's say in junior year you suddenly decide now we need to borrow because we're out of savings. You can't go back and get the 5500 and 6500 that you didn't get in the first two years. Gotcha. So you just want to keep that in mind as you're thinking this through. The other thing is to look at what kind of loan, if you applied for financial aid and your student was offered a loan um, and you're wondering whether you're going to need it, look at what type of loan it is. Because if it's a subsidized loan, that means it's interest-free while the student's in school. So in that case, it might make sense to borrow that subsidized loan and delay using your savings a little bit longer. Right. Because maybe you what, could... Sorry, what were you going to yeah, say? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe you could... Well, I was going to say maybe you could then, um, if it turns out you're not going to need that, you have enough yep. savings, you could use the savings to pay down the loan, but you've given yourself a cushion. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now... Um, the other, and but then in general, I mean, when you're looking at the loans, if you decide the loans are just more expensive than what you can make on your savings, and many of them are, you know, like the federal parent loan is at 7.21% right now. Um, so that in that case, you might decide, okay, we're going to use up all the savings now and then delay borrowing for as long as we can so that you save yourself that interest. Gotcha. And and actually, something we're talking about next week is parent financing and yes. making choices around that. So um, for those of you who are wondering about that, we'll come back next week and we're going to cover that. Uh, is there anything else, Kathy, or is that pretty much cover the using savings to pay for college? I think we've we've hit on all the topics, but I don't know if there's anything we're missing. No, I think we've, I, I, I would just say congratulations on having saved for college. That's... <laughs> Right, that's a big one right there. That's a big one right there, and you have you have saved yourself in what you might need to borrow. Um, and so congratulations that you did it, and just um, be careful with those 529 plans. Make sure that you're, um, you're paying attention to when you make those withdrawals and payments, and, and you're managing things so that you don't have to pay taxes on the earnings. Right, keeping documentation, very important, yes, as I saw back and forth on email. Exactly. Yeah. And All right. that can be challenging with college students, of course, but try to communicate yes. that right ahead, <laughs> right up front. So, exactly. Uh, if you don't do this, then we're going to get hit with a big bill, and then I may not be able to afford to send you back there. So <laughs> yes. keep, 
keep those documents, keep those receipts. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. We'll be back in a minute to talk about last-minute summer plans for high school students. So come right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It is May 14th here in sunny, beautiful Massachusetts. At least today, it's sunny and beautiful. It is not always so. Uh, but summer's right around the corner, and you may not feel like it. I know that my son does not get out of school until June 26th. So for me, summer feels like a lifetime away, but I guarantee you that in about two weeks, I'm going to get a Land's End catalog talking about back to school, which will totally infuriate me because summer hasn't started yet, but it is coming. Um, and you know, if you've been listening to the show or to reading articles in the news or talking to your guidance counselor or to other parents that summer is really important for you or for your child, and it's important to use the time wisely. But maybe you've procrastinated and you still don't have a plan. Uh, so that's where we're what we're covering today. So Mary Sue Yoon, who's a former senior admissions officer at Barnard College, she's here to help. Welcome, Mary Sue. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, and I'm excited to have you back. You were on, I think, on our very first show, and uh, yeah, I was. And that's exciting. So anyway, you're back, which is great. And um, we work with our students quite a bit on summer. And I know that when I'm working with a student who starts with me early enough, we're talking about summer as early as September. They've just gone back to school. And I'm saying, what do you want to do this summer? What is your goal? And the reason we start early is because um, the bigger the goal or the, the more you think about what you want to do and plan for it, often the more interesting summer experience you're going to have. But I can also recognize and appreciate that even though I sometimes start talking about it in September, they don't do anything about it. And also, many of you are thinking, well, we didn't start in September, so what does that mean for us? Um, 
And, uh, but we know that there are always options and things you can take advantage of. So I guess my first question for you is, you know, I have kids who are going to be going and doing environmental programs and studying fungi on rocks. And I've got kids who are going to go to court and, you know, be observers and listen to people's alibis. But what kinds of things can students do if they have, are there programs available even if you haven't yet lined one up? Uh, yes, there are. And so, and, and you're absolutely right um, that, you know, there's lots of different options of what students can still do in the summer. Um, and there are still summer programs that are available. Maybe you applied, maybe the student applied to a selective summer program earlier on in the year and, you know, didn't get in. The application didn't work out the way you thought. And so suddenly you find yourself on May 14th not having that summer program option. Um, and I probably would want to start by saying, as a former admissions officer, we didn't necessarily look for summer programs. That was not a requirement, even for the highly selective colleges. There's a lot of things that students can do, and, and we'll certainly kind of go through a few of them today. Um, but if you do have a student who um, is still looking for that summer program as a way to kind of extend um, some interest that they may have or maybe explore an area that they can't explore during the school year, um, I think, you know, I think for an example of, you know, students who, who might be interested in engineering, but they don't have an outlet in high school to take classes in engineering. So a summer program could be a great way to maybe take an introductory engineering course. Um, so summer can really be used to enrich and enhance things uh, that you maybe you don't have a chance to do during the school year. So there are st- still some summer programs that are open. Um, I would recommend first looking at your more local summer programs because if it's a program that is going to be non-residential for you, meaning you're going to be living at home and they don't have to assign you a roommate and find housing mm-hmm. for you, then they may still take you as an applicant. A lot of universities will have a summer session for their own college students. And so as a high school student, you may be able to register for those summer classes that the college students would be taking. Um, and those classes um, might still be open. So. Uh, I would say sort of start first and look at your local universities that you could easily commute to over the summer um, to find some what their summer program catalog looks like. Uh, there's a website that I found that um, it kind of gets at some of these and compiles some of these summer programs. It's called studenteducationprograms.com, and it is actually sortable by state. Um, and that website, you can look up your specific state and see if there's programs in your area that... Um, that might still be open, and, and starting with those local programs might be the best way to go. There's some pretty popular ones that, just as I was doing a search today, um, seem to still be open, or at least their applications are still open on their website, like the National Student Leadership Conference. That's a, a pretty big organization that puts on summer programs all across the country. Um, the Harvard Summer College still seems to have their application up and open. Um, the Indiana School of Journalism program, some of those still seem to be open. So these are some pretty popular programs, and at least according to their websites, it seems like some of them might still be open. Of course, you know, your mileage may vary. When you actually look into them, they might (laughs) say that they are actually closed, but I think it never hurts to ask and to to inquire about a few different programs in your local area um, that might still be accepting those applications. Great. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, all of those are great reasons to do summer programs the, that you mentioned a little bit earlier, especially exploring something that you haven't had a chance to explore before. Um, but 
as you noted, summer programs are certainly not a requirement. It's certainly not an expectation. We didn't expect to see that at Penn. It wasn't a, boy, if you haven't done a summer program, then you're going to be out of luck. We just wanted to see students doing interesting things with their um, summers. And actually, one of those interesting things could be a job. Um, So what about getting a job at this point um, for the summer? Yeah, getting a job is a great option. And actually, you know, many folks, myself included, who are reading those applications had summer jobs. You know, I had a summer job from the time I was 14 on. um, And I can tell you I learned a lot working at a pizza place and working in different restaurants for several summers. Um, So I I think that that is a well-respected path as well. And, And admissions officers do realize that not every family has the finances that make those other more expensive, you know, college summer programs affordable to them. So they are realistic about that. Um, and there's a lot that you can learn in a summer job. I would say in looking for a summer job, just over the years I've noticed a trend when I will say that to, to students that I'm working with, that they say, oh, I can't find a job, or there's lots of places that are saying that a student has to be a minimum of 16 to, uh, to get a job. And I think that's, that's definitely true for um, some of your big chain retail stores, um, many of them have a policy of 16 or even 18 for employees. So, you know, you may kind of strike out if you do go to the mall and hit a lot of chain stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at your more local options, uh, your mom and pop stores in your downtown district might be a way to go. They might be a little more open to taking a student who um, might be a little bit below that age 16 or, you know, maybe um, comes in a little bit later. But a student does want to get on this pretty quickly because, Right now, mid-May is when a lot of the college students are coming yep. home. And so you kind of want to beat them to the punch or, you know, they're in the middle of looking for their summer job uh, experiences as well. So, um, you know, you do want to kind of get on that and start pounding the pavement, take your resume out, um, and try and see what options might be out there from, you know, working at a frozen yogurt place to bagging groceries at the grocery store. There's lots of jobs that could be out there. Um, and if a student doesn't find a job at a store, there's always jobs that can be uh, self-created, like, um, you know, the old standbys of babysitting or yard work or pet sitting um, are things that students can really do kind of no matter what their age um, and don't really have those age restrictions. And, you know, I have seen some students, I had a student a few years ago who was interested in business, and he actually over several summers really created his own lawn care company, um, and it showed a tremendous amount of entrepreneurship to go out and market himself and to get clients, get referrals, um, and he actually had a really nice kind of business going by his senior year, so those self-created jobs actually can show off some skills um, that you know a, a more standard job wouldn't, so, so don't discount those as well. Yeah, I think there's real value in that. And and like you, I worked every summer and I would say a lot of admissions officers spent their summers working. Uh, and in this country, because a lot has sprung up around the college admissions world there, I, I feel like there's a big push for people to do programs or go abroad and build houses or do things like that. But the reality is that that good old-fashioned summer job where you work for an adult you're not related to and you have to show mm-hmm. up on time and do yep. what's asked of you has an incredible value in a way that people would be surprised by. So. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that choice. Um, 
And nothing will also, nothing like spending your summer washing dishes to make you realize how important it is to go to college so that that's not what you're doing for the rest of your life. Uh, What about, what other options are there if, um, you know, sort of barring the more expensive summer program that maybe is, maybe you don't have a field you're dying to to mm-hmm. explore or um, you looked for a job, you couldn't find it, or you're just kind of, maybe you have a job, but you can't get that many hours and you still have plenty of time on your hands. What other kinds of things maybe could students do? So there are a few other options and I'd like to stress that, you know, student may, might have somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks in total over the summer, and they don't have to do the same thing over all of those 10 or 12 weeks. Um, You can kind of piecemeal some things together. Maybe you go to a summer program for a week. Maybe you volunteer for a couple weeks. Maybe there's some family travel that's going on in your summer. But I think that the end goal of summer is that if you go into your fall and say you're a senior, you get go on a college admissions interview, and the interviewer says, so how did you spend your time this summer? you want to make sure that you have an answer more significant than, um, and then, you know, I, I sat at home on the couch and I play video games. You know, you want something that is a little more significant than that, that you can talk about in essays and interviews. Um, but it could be a few different things pieced together. Um, sometimes students might look to their local community college to take some coursework over the summer beyond the university programs. Um, if there's some sort of scheduling conflict in, in your schedule for your next academic year and, you know, you can't fit something in your schedule, but there's a course that you really want to take. Um, Sometimes a summer class at a community college might be helpful, but I would caution against um, taking classes specifically to uh, make your next year schedule lighter. That's not necessarily rewarded in the admissions offices. They'd like to see students who can balance a full full course load, but if there is really a, a scheduling conflict, um, that prevents a student from taking an area, then a, a summer community college class might be able to fill that hole. Um, another thing that students can do is they can, invol- they can do some volunteer work. Uh, there's a website called volunteermatch.org that I love. You can put in your zip code and you can say, I want to work with kids or the elderly or with um, you know, health organizations, and it'll give you a list of local organizations to you that, that might be having uh, a need for volunteers. I would hazard a guess that if a student wanted to spend every single summer weekend giving out, you know, water at a local 5 or 10K race, um, they probably could do that. You know, there's, there's enough yep. charity events going on that you could probably put together a good amount of community service um, through those kinds of looking through those websites like volunteermatch.org or your local Red Cross or other um, charity organizations in your area. Um, and the other thing that I would say, or the final thing that I would say in sort of another option is that, you know, your family or your family friends might have some jobs, they might be involved in careers that you find interesting. So, you know, if your neighbor is a vet and you've considered going to vet school, maybe just asking them if you can shadow their place of business for a couple of days or a week to see if it is something that's appealing to you. And and really thinking among your family network or your friends network, are there people in my life that, that might allow me to kind of see what they do? And I think that particularly for older students going into 11th grade or 12th grade, these can be great opportunities to kind of see what different work environments are like. Yeah, and I think that's two, two important thing that, things that you mentioned there. The first is the idea that you could probably find a volunteer opportunity to do every weekend. And whether it's volunteer work or anything else, it's sometimes it's, 
if you want to make something more impressive, maybe you're not doing the same thing, but you're doing a lot of that in one mm-hmm. summer. So yep. it's maybe, you know, it's a couple of weekends where you're handing out water and then you're doing something else. But all cumulatively, to your point, kind of comes together as a, wow, you did a lot of stuff with your summer. And then the other piece is the networking. I mean, that's important no matter who you are or how old you are. And there's no time like the present to start developing those networking skills and asking around and recognizing that it's the people that you know who may ultimately lead to some of the more interesting opportunities you'll have in this life. Um, And that's never more true than when you are dying for something to do over the summer and, uh, you know, you might uncover something really cool. Um, Mary Sue, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Beth. All right. So hopefully you guys got some good uh, tips out of there. There were some great websites, volunteermatch.org and then studenteducationprograms.com. I wrote those both down. I'm going to keep those handy. Um, I do want to say thanks to Mary Sue and to all of my guests today. Uh, Next week, we're all about making a successful transition to college. We, of course, spend most of our time on the show talking about the application process and college finance and all of those things, but the process doesn't really end the moment that you deposit at your school of choice, so there's lots of other things to consider, and we're going to have tips for both parents and students about how to transition to college as painlessly and successfully as possible. We'll also be talking about using parent financing to pay for college, whether that's the ideal situation for you and kind of how to go about doing that. I also wanted to announce an upcoming uh, All Callers show, um, and I want to welcome all of our listeners to be our guests on air and get your questions answered live. I'm going to share some more details next week, but the show's going to happen sometime in June, so keep it in mind. So if you have some in-depth conversa- uh, questions and maybe it would be more helpful for us to have a conversation to answer those, we'd like to have you on as our guest More to come on that next week. In the meantime, if you have ideas for an upcoming segment or questions you'd like us to answer, please send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to visit our archives. There's great information on there about who qualifies for financial aid. That was a question that we had uh, this week. You can listen to a segment on that. Um, Getting started on the college list, making the most of your college visits. You can also download the shows for free on iTunes. And don't forget to come back next week. We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.